And Facebook loves to introduce us right into the world without saying anything. Hello, Wonder Tribe, Wonder Family, those who are just visiting. We are so excited to be with you on our final momversation on race. This has been quite the journey. It's been an exciting journey. Um, we're glad that you've been along with us. And we can't wait to dive right into this conversation. For those who may not recall, we started this journey, Erica and I, after we had a march with other women and mothers uh, post the murder of George Floyd. But it was an opportunity to engage people in conversation and learning, but also to think about how do we move and what's our way forward. Today's topic is the close of the life cycle of a black child. We have gone from preconception all the way tonight to adulthood. And we are talking about the power struggle and the matriarchy. Now, a totally different topic, two totally different worlds. But our thought was that as a black child grows older into an adult, and as our world and our nation is shifting and lots of dialogue about grounding of America and what does that mean for us? Um, I think one of the topics that comes up is the power struggle that most black and brown people you do not see in positions of power. And if so, we are still learning and leveraging how we elevate those roles to serve the collective. I think the matriarchy is a different conversation, but one that also comes up because the shifting of our world and our nation is, are we becoming more of a matriarchal society? And what does that mean for us? How does that uh, benefit or not benefit, I think, the black adult as the black child has now grown up. And so to have this conversation with us, we got a mastermind because we felt like we had to end with the bang and give us all the education and knowledge. Um, so we invited Dr. Adrian Johnson Williams. But in case you have not had the pleasure of meeting her, I'm gonna share and turn it over to Erica. She will tell us a little bit more about our special guest. Thank you, Lori, and thank you everyone for joining us. As Lori said, this has definitely been a journey. It has been eye-opening, educational, motivational. Um, so we are definitely excited to close out the conversation tonight, but to really start the second phase around what does it look like to activate. Um, but we have with us tonight um, someone who I think can definitely speak about the, the full life cycle, Dr. Adrian Johnson-Williams. Yes, Dr. We're going to put some respect on her name, <laughs> um, Dr. Adrienne Johnson-Williams. And I think with her background in education, philanthropy, and then also organizational effectiveness can really give us a great look into the power struggle, how they impact people at all different um, leadership levels, how they will impact our children and, and the matriarchy. So I know Dr. Um, Williams, Johnson Williams, you'll give us some more of your background before you launch into the topic. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. I've really been looking forward to this uh, since I got the invitation a while ago, actually. And I've been um, poking around the internet uh, to see what are the ways that people tend to connect the two issues. Because as Lori said, these two things we don't often think about in the same at the same time. But in reality, um, it really did become clear to me that they really are connected. Uh, so uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about me. So one of the other things about me is that my doctorate uh, is in education policy studies. 
And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about the life cycle of uh, human beings in the United States uh, in terms of their education and development. Uh, and also in terms of who has the power to influence what their education is going to be and what their opportunities are going to look like. Uh, and so when I thought about these topics of power struggle and matriarchy, I came up with two, I, you know, tend not to want to talk about things in terms of dichotomies, but I came up with two dichotomies that I think are worth paying attention to. One is this idea of the individual um, versus collective power. And uh, we all have power. Every single human being has power. As an individual, we have personal power. Uh, depends on kind of how we want to use it to set our boundaries, to decide what we will and won't do. So we have our own power. And I think it, because of the American capitalist enterprise, we think about power as something that we can pursue individually, gain um, access to and wield uh, to our benefit or even to the detriment of the people who are probably in opposition to us. Um, but there's also collective power. And uh, if we haven't given any thought to the idea of collective power before this year, I think this year we really did think about what does it mean to come together to make something happen. And I think it's even more pressing for um, minority groups, particularly I think about as someone called uh, black and brown people, the global majority. Um, and that is true uh, in the United States. However, we are definitely um, kind of numerically still in the minority, but we could have more collective power if we came together uh, to make it happen. And there are young people all over the United States who are sh have shown us a lot of ways that we can actually wield our collective power. So that's one dichotomy. Um, the other one though that intersects with this is this idea of the matriarchy. And my uh, question that came to mind almost immediately when I was presented with this is that in the US, when we think about um, black folk and black families, we have to remember that our histories are very much intertwined with the histories of white families and the white matriarchy and the black matriarchy look very different because historically speaking, um, white women have not worked in partnership or collaboration with black women or women of color, generally speaking. But I'm going to talk about this as a black woman from a black white perspective. And so you get um, a group of women that has been rather firmly entrenched in support of white male patriarchy in opposition to black women. And then you get black women or and if this is evident in black feminism, where the idea of using collective power as women is really in service to all people, <laughs> everybody. So if everybody can be free, we can be free. Whereas when you think about white feminism, it's how can I get more um, access and power and privilege um, without actually thinking about the collective. So I think, um, Lori, while it may seem like those are two very different topics, they're really very much connected. Um, this idea of the struggle for power and matriarchy, because while I can't say whether or not we're becoming a matriarchal society, that is well beyond my scope of um, <laughs> knowledge. Um, I haven't done any reading or research on that. I can say 
that where black women become more um, elevated uh, as individuals and um, think about it and use their influence from a collective perspective, from a black feminist perspective, it definitely will make all of our lives better. Yes. And I knew you were just the person that bridge. <laughs> she said challenge accepted. Right. Done. <laughs> the dots have been connected. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my opening spiel. Um, I'm ready to be challenged on any of those things, but I could also uh, go even further down any pathway because I really have um, pulled all the thoughts together. And I have quite a few different thoughts, especially on every part of the life cycle that you have yeah. um, presented thus far. Yeah, please. I think that would be great to connect the dots for people who are listening. Just like, how do we get to here? Right. We started with preconception. We've gone through, you know, toddler from elementary to high school to secondary or post secondary into adulthood. And so um and i use education as the the pieces i can remember yeah. the life cycle but you know how did those things get us to the to this point today um and even starting from the beginning right because yeah. I, for some we talk a lot about the power struggle in our house just because i think people of color who assume that they have power it is often challenged when they are met with the majority and mm -hmm. they grapple with that because they're like i'm a person of power like what does this mean that this person is challenging me and for me the question is well what kind of power what level mm -hmm. of power um power are you exercise that power outside of the individual how are you mm -hmm. exactly? well i'm going to speak directly to that and then get into the pathway. So this idea of power, if you think about just the pure definition of power, it's, you know, the ability to make things happen. And uh, if there's somebody else who has the ability to make more things happen or to make things happen that can shut down your thing, then you're, you know, they got more power. I mean, it's pretty much that. It, you know, it sounds like playground politics, but I feel like all politics are kind of playground politics. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So um, let's talk about it from preconception. Um, I, I don't remember who you had on for that topic, but I have learned so much um, from Cherise Scott and Sister Reach. I have learned a great deal about uh, reproductive justice and the real struggle, the real power struggle over uh, women's bodies and um, black women's bodies in particular. And um, our ability to actually practice our personal power in control of our own. And so that idea of thinking about um, matriarchal issues uh, and um, just like preconception is fundamental to how human beings come into the world. Um, so either sometimes you come into the world um, in an environment where everyone around you is um prepared and capable and unencumbered in supporting you um throughout your development uh early childhood adolescence and sometimes you come into an environment where um a number of the systems and structures in place are designed to destroy you in some way and so and there are all sorts of things along the continuum and the degrees that 
your family and your community have to combat those um, those challenges. And so there's at every step of the way, there is a struggle, a real power struggle over who and I as I was saying this, I was like, I didn't even think about this in advance, but a real power struggle over whose life matters, whose life um, gets investment, whose life gets protected um, all, as all the way up. And when it comes to young black young people, that struggle happens as early as preschool and kindergarten. I mean, if you think about the way that um, we understand child development, there are behaviors that all children exhibit uh, when they're two and three. And I don't have children, uh, so I always watch from a distance. But from what I can tell, two-year-olds and three-year-olds can be terrorists. And and if you're like um, a, a little brown two-year-old or three-year-old, then you're actually called a terrorist, right? You're actually suspended mm -hmm. from kindergarten and preschool. And that's ridiculous, right? right? These are developmentally appropriate behaviors often that are characterized in ways that um, are signaling this future criminality that people have already placed on, on um, our children. Um, and if you take that up to adolescence, right, and um, young adulthood, it just the same struggle um, exists in the entire spectrum. It looked like you were about to say something, Lori, so I stopped. No, I um I was listening. I think you made some comment that I said I was going to make a note to follow up on, but please continue. Don't. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, again, this idea that there is a power struggle around um, whose life matters at every every stage, every developmental stage. Yeah. So we have preschool, kindergarten, we have adolescence, right? So in adolescence, um. One of the things uh, that I, I understood, but again, I'm just giving, Sharice is really the person whose work is really foremost in my mind right now. I've been thinking about even the basics of comprehensive sex education, right? The idea that we have our own personal power, but as people, we have to be educated and trained and learn how to understand what's going on um, with our bodies. And if you don't, if you're not giving given access to that, then you're not able to practice your personal power in ways that are going to benefit you. You're actually subject to the whims of other people's power. And that's a political struggle. It is actually a political struggle for someone in the state legislature in Nashville and then people, you know, um, perhaps in local legislative bodies to say you absolutely may not teach these young people about how their bodies work. What? <laughs> right? You, what, we, can't actually, we can't do that? Like that, that feels like it's wrong. And it feels like it should be something that people should look at and go, that's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. Because if you're going to learn biology, why is it in biology you are not learning about human biology? You are not learning about your body. Why isn't that? Why is it in other areas you're not actually learning about all the aspects of what it means to be a human being? And so that also is a key area. And if you're, I think about my own mom. Uh, so I was in girls club when I was a young girl uh, and it's now girls Inc. And they taught us, they had all of these um, comprehensive sex ed um, courses and sessions. And my mom signed me and my sister up for every single thing all the time. And my mom was very deeply religious, right? And she was like, 
you know what I believe, you know what we believe, but there is no way you're going to go through this life and not know about how your body works, right? You're going to know these things, right? And she's doing it for everything. But if there weren't Girls Inc., think about all the girls who went to Girls Inc. We showed up with so much knowledge and then other girls didn't have any access to that. Um, and I got in trouble a lot on the playground, quite frankly, uh, for saying things to people because I was like, you know, it's just knowledge. But um, I didn't know you. Were supposed to, I didn't know everybody didn't know. Right. <laughs> All these things. But that is also an issue of the power that mothers have over how it is their children are educated and trained and developed. But in a society like ours where there's other there are people with more power. Um, who get to dictate how much time mothers actually have to do this work <laughs> um, and also uh, define whether or not it happens. Um, mm-hmm. it's a, it is a constant battle. And that just gets you up to high school, right? That's just like, you know, yeah. teens right then. That doesn't even get you into the early adulthood and all the other things. And I mean, it's amazing when you reflect on, it's amazing the things that, we are taught to call shame so that we are not able to have those open conversations. I mean, you know, Lori and I, we can probably look in our friendship group meet any given day and we're probably asking each other questions that you, you should, you should have known at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, especially even around motherhood and that whole process around, you know, pregnancy and what happens through delivery mm-hmm. and all of that. And then now as you're getting older, as a woman and you're like okay now what's happening to my body and you're just like why haven't we talked about this yeah um and so yeah there is definitely something in play that is that is beneficial to someone Mm -hmm. for women to not have that information so i there are a couple of key issues that i've learned about again i don't have children i've never been pregnant i don't have that but my um i've learned a lot about the prevalence of miscarriage um, and how common it is by watching people like love and care about go through it and then watching them learn how common it is and then watching them become more angry and frustrated that nobody prepared them. Nobody told me how common this was. Right. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm older, of course, in perimenopause, um, I'm learning a lot about. Well, there's a lot I already know because I read all these books. And so something happens and I go, oh, I think that might be this. But um, when I have conversations at home with my wife, she's like, how do you even know that? I was like, well, I learned it. Um, I took all these classes when I was in high school. I went to a girl's school um, in our dorms. I went to a girl's boarding school in our dorms. They had our bodies ourselves, this little book in every living room. So we got to read all the things about how your body works. Um, And I was just used to knowing it. But I realized that, I mean, she's the same age I am, and she doesn't have the knowledge that I have. So, and that was a choice. Somebody somewhere along the way made a choice that um, this would not be publicly available information. Um, And it's our collective responsibility to claim whatever power we can um, to educate ourselves. I'm constantly, I have this kind of dream that um, if we can't get a collective, a comprehensive sex education uh, in schools that we can come up with some sort of united, you know, after school model where everybody gets comprehensive sex ed built into everything they do after school. And then you can go off and do the other things um, because I just feel like that is so fundamental um, for our well-being. It's an it's a public health issue. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but then if you think about other issues around um, power, it's also a matter of just understanding what your options are and people having a really expansive sense of or not even an expansive sense, but the freedom to dream and to think about who you are and who you want to be in the world. Um, just the ability to dream is really powerful because I know that I've had conversations in my own uh, work as an educator, um, both as a high school teacher and in um, higher ed, of hearing um, young people, young people with considerable privilege, consider their options as very narrow. And then working locally in the nonprofit sector and interacting with people, helping me to understand how some of the young people here in Memphis have very narrow sense of what their options are, that they don't they're not given the um, ability to or the freedom to dream. And I heard recently um, Amber Hamilton over at MMI say something about creative liberation, this freedom that comes with being able to embrace all of your creativity and have a sense of what you can do and be in the world and the amount of power that can come from that. Um, those are beautiful. That was a beautiful concept. When she said it, I had to just mm-hmm. take a moment to reflect on what is that? Wow, creative liberation and all the different ways that we can um, struggle for our own freedom. Uh, so mm-hmm. um, shout out to Hamilton. As I, I think about this, I was like, there's so all the people that I really, not all the people, but the vast majority of people I learn from and that I've been learning from in Memphis around these ideas of power are black women um, now that I think of it. So um, I've learned a great deal from Sharice, even watching from afar. And um, I attended one of her training sessions and I um, watch just about every video she posts from her work and all of her testimonies. I've learned a lot from her and I've learned a great deal from Amber about the limitations we put on young people, particularly when it comes to the arts and how how liberatory the arts can be, how freeing it can be to have a place of imagination. And and it's not that you have to grow up to be a musician or or to be a painter or a sculptor. But being able to to really access that part of your imagination creates more opportunities for you, other ways for you to imagine what you have the power to do. Mm. I really like that. And I think what are some things that, and this may even be from your background as an educator, but then also through your learning. So what are some things, what are some small steps we can do to really encourage those who are listening who may be part of a village or maybe a parent themselves to create kind of their future state that we will want or that current state for our kids? So one of the things that I, I think is uh, kind of challenging is actually letting your children have power. Again, I say this as someone who has no children, right? <laughs> so you may just, I'm just going to say what the literature <laughs> says about child development and brain development, right? So environments where children don't learn how to make their own decisions and live with the consequences of those things and make mistakes and learn, um, if children are, uh, if the environment is too authoritative and they don't, they can't make a move without permission or, um, quite frankly, 
not a, not with lacking any boundaries, then they don't learn how to respect boundaries. That that space to give children to kind of run around and and you know bump into things uh, in an intellectual sense um, is one way to give them some control, a sense of control over um, their own lives. Uh, one of the things that I also talk about is um, just control over their own bodies. I um, have uh, Kind of nieces, and well, I have two nieces now, and um, and nephews, and I always ask for permission. And other members of my family, are like, what are you doing? I was like, well, I'd have to know. Like, may I give you a hug? Um, is it okay if I touch your hair? And sometimes they say no, and when they say no, I say okay, and I stop. And then you hear, well, you know, they're you know, just give them. A hug. I was like, no, this is theirs. This is the one thing they have control over that they will have control over their whole lives. It's good to teach them now that they have control over it, not just for safety reasons, but also to help them begin to understand what it means to set boundaries and have those boundaries respected. And if you start even there, and if you have older kids, I think where you haven't done that, it's they're old enough to talk to about it and really reframe just what it means to be in control of what you actually own and to have your boundaries respected and to be listened to um, and to be given the opportunity to dream. Um, the other thing I would say is when young people talk about what they want, what their dreams are, let them have that. Let them have it. Uh, if, if, if a child is a horrible, horrible at math and they're like, I want to be an engineer, say, okay, let's learn about what it means to be an engineer, right? Don't say you can't even get above us, a, a, you know, D in math. You can't be an engineer because the reality is there are people who are engineers right now who were horrible math students at some point. You can find them like they tell those stories. And so. We have to do what we can not to be the thing that limits the kind of uh, the power of our own people. We have to be able to dream big enough with people and support other people's dreams in a way that allows us to be as expansive as we want to be. And if we fail, you know, that's okay. Then we learn how to fail and we learn how to how to do better next time. But I would encourage us not to be so fearful of what could happen and the hurt that could come from a dream that doesn't come true to keep that dream from flourishing. And I have to say in my own life, and I don't know, I don't want to deal in gender stereotypes, but I have found uh, among my friends that, and in my own life, that it's been moms who are more likely to, to let those kind of dreams flourish and let the imagination happen um, than dads. But I know that there are some really amazing dads out there, too, who uh, really want everything for their children and want to give them the opportunities to dream big. So, I don't, like I said, don't want to deal in stereotypes, but in my experience, I have experienced it more with moms um, in my own life and among my own friends. And I will add that that's probably a learned behavior, right, to, because that's freedom, right, to allow kids that early freedom to dream big, believe, and hope. Um, that some of us didn't necessarily receive, I think, growing up just because of the ways our parents may have been raised. 
but we are constantly going back and forth with and challenging what is conventional um, parenting or mothering that we have seen or that we experience as children and how that relates and is the reality of our kids, right? Mm-hmm. I was laughing um, because Eric and I, <laughs> I can't, our youngest asked why about something, right? And my autopilot was to respond how my mother used to say when I asked her why, don't you ask her why? Are you asking me why? <laughs> um, but then I was like, if I say that my kids are so literal, kids are just, they're different and they're exposed to so much nowadays. That that shuts off something in their brain to ask the question and to be curious and um, feel comfortable asking those questions. And so I, I fast forward that because I related that to experience that we're watching at work now, that we have adults who don't feel comfortable asking why. Mm-hmm. That was a thought habit that was planted as a child. And so that just continued to follow them throughout. And so they're in a work and doing foolish stuff because they don't want to ask why and running themselves ragged. Yeah. But it's this is so true. And they don't have the opportunity to even develop that critical thinking because you're constantly doing the thinking for them. Go yeah. here, sit there, no choices, no options. Like I tell my husband all the time, I was like, at least give them options that it doesn't really matter which one they pick. Like, hey, do you want an apple or a banana? I mean, either one, I'm good. But at least they can start making some choices. And I think that I remember reading something a while ago, or maybe it was even a meme that somebody posted about how, you know, the voices from parents become like the child's inner voice. So those things that you're constantly saying to your child, you know, later on, they won't even necessarily remember where did I hear that or who made me believe this about myself, but it just becomes their inner voice that they continue to hear. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I'm talking to them, even if I'm correcting them about something, I want to do it in a way that they hear that reverberating in their minds 10, 15 years from now, it won't be something that holds them back or makes them feel like I'm a bad person, I'm horrible, I can't do these things. But in some way, you know, will be positive to them. And, you know, this particular thing isn't, you know, raced either. This is something that happens regardless of race or socioeconomic status, right? That um, you can have the same kinds of behaviors show up uh, anywhere on the race or income spectrum. I have to say when I was um, teaching undergrad briefly, which was so Middle grades and below and undergrad were kind of my least favorite um, <laughs> areas to teach. But uh, when I was teaching undergrad, I had a young woman come to my office hours and uh, want to argue with me about something um, because her dad said, which is all I remember because I don't really care what your dad said, but that, but that instinct, the idea that she was spending so much time doing her work and it came up like she would go to classes and then she would go back and talk to her dad about it and then her dad would tell her what to think and then she would go and like talk about it and I um it was shocking to her um for me to say if your dad wants a grade in this class he can come um take the class and do the work but if you're here you're going to have to think about what you think for yourself on your own because your dad isn't going to be there for you for the rest of your life to think for you and to make decisions for you um, and 
she was just horrified. Unfortunately, she also cried, which I had a reputation for uh, as an educator. Uh, not that I was mean to people, but I think that I didn't, you know, provide the right kind of nurturing environment all the time. Probably a good reason why I'm not a mom. I'd be a great mom. <laughs> but <laughs> Um, yeah. and she really struggled because I was not going to let her um, use these kind of pre-programmed ways of thinking uh, to get through the work that she had in front of her. She didn't have time to go back and talk to her dad about it. She had to have that thinking process right there and do the work right there. And I don't think I think her dad probably thought he was doing her a favor, but he wasn't doing her a favor at all. She has to do this on her own. And she was too old to be showing up to anybody saying my dad said, that's ridiculous. <laughs> so we have to do better um, because otherwise then you literally have zero personal. None. I wonder what happens when other people show up who have more power than you and tell you what to do. Shut down. You know, yeah. that trap you? So I wanted to ask you just, on that same vein, how we see that also show up in workplaces. And um, I know you can speak to nonprofit and philanthropy, but also I think for me and not, well, I guess in both circumstances, I was going to say in nonprofit and philanthropy, it has a greater impact on the outcome of other people. Mm-hmm. But I would say in corporate, probably the same thing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. your impact on people is either internal customer being employees or associates. Mm-hmm and or external customer, your client. And so Erica mentioned a point earlier just about shameful or shaming conversations. And I think this year has been the lift of the veil, right? Of some of those conversations. I think was a little bit of an introduction as we started talking about politics um, and that presidential race. But this year we had all kinds of things happening that removed um, that veil of we can't talk about these things at work. Mm-hmm. And so give me just your thoughts or insights on how that impacts a workplace, um, mm-hmm. whether it's private or um, private sector or nonprofit, how it impacts the workplace, but also the people within the workplace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think um, I'm going to answer your question just from the perspective of leadership, right? So, um, and I know we people shy away from the parallels of parenting and leadership, but the reality is authority is authority, right? So if you're in a position of authority, then the way that you practice your authority, the way that you uh, take it up has serious implications for the ability of your team to be effective. So if you practice authority as someone who is authoritative, <laughs> and who has to give people instructions every step of the way, and who dictates what is and is not acceptable entirely without discussion, then you're gonna have a team that's basically incapable of functioning uh, without your presence. And it's gonna be exhausting and you're gonna be really bitter because you're like, I just have to do everything. Like, no, you have to do everything because you've said you have to do everything. Like you made that choice. Um, Conversely, if you, take up leadership in a way where you recognize that your authority is something that you really want for people to give you, right? You want for the people who report to you to give you authority. You want for them to see you as the person that they're going to follow. Um, And then 
you want to give them back the authority to do their work. You want to authorize them to do their work and to make space for them in the same ways. Make space for them to make mistakes and come and say, okay, I don't understand this. Require them to come to you and say, if you don't understand, you need to come ask me questions. And if you don't ask me questions, then it's on you. But if you ask me questions, then we can both carry the load of this. We can both take responsibility. Um, really think about shared accountability and shared responsibility as a means of building a culture of cooperation, a collective um, you know, environment. I think the way that you, and it's very much the topic, right? The way that you wield power as a leader um, is actually going to dictate what your outcomes are for your team, what your environment is, um, and the, the ability that people have to take up learning and to be willing to learn because learning takes risks, right? I was a French teacher and uh, one of the things that I learned very early on uh, is that the fear that people have when trying to learn another language, the fear of actually speaking words that they don't fully know can be uh, debilitating. And so you have to create an environment where people know it's safe to take, take risks because that is where they can learn and develop and grow. And just as we want our young people to grow, we need the people on our teams to grow and develop and be better. Um, otherwise, we're going to be needing to get rid of them. Right. Mm -hmm. I love that parallel. And that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, just how we even show up. We think about it a lot in the workplace, but then how we also show up at home and like, what type of leader we are at home and how that impacts, you know, what type of little people we're raising. Yes. There's a frame we use um, at standpoint and in results-based work generally um, that's uh, called person role system, right? So that we exist in um, different systems. Our workplace is a system, our home, our family system, our kind of nuclear family system, our huge family system, our neighborhood systems, like there are different systems that we operate in and we occupy different roles in those systems. But no matter where we are, we're the same person and who we are as a person may interact differently with different roles and systems. But I think if we do the work to think about what our values are, how we want to help other people develop and grow, um, how we respect boundaries, how we think about our own power and other people's power, then we can show up the same in every system and make that system better. Um, but if we are in situations where we kind of allow ourselves to be subject to, to the whims of other systems and environments, then um, we're, we're not able to show up as our best selves every place. And again, I would say just not to be a, you know, beat the you know drum over and over again, but we develop that ability to be confident enough, to be authentic enough, to show up in every system the same way, because at some point along the way, we've understood what our personal power is, what we have control over, which is only ourselves, and how to set boundaries and have people respect our boundaries. Like we learn those skills. Um, and the more we're able to practice those skills uh, individually, that we show up in every place the same way. Um, and people respect that. I, in my experience, people respect that because I show up in the same way in every single place <laughs> all the time. Like, I was just like, this is me. This is you got. Like, it's not going to change. Um, I might turn up the volume. Like, yeah, maybe I'll be at a nine. Maybe I'll be at a four. 
but the volume is the only thing that's really going to change. And I think you begin to build a reputation as someone who really understands their own power and how to use it effectively in different spaces. And if your identity also allows for you to recognize that real power doesn't come as an individual, but as a collective, that you can really um, think about this idea of influence and access in a way that extends power and makes room for other people to access power and influence, um, then I feel like that really magnifies the amount of power you can have both as an individual and as a collective. I took a long pathway there. It just kept going. <laughs> That's what happens, right? We just continue to ripple. Um, and I'm going to continue to rippling on. So can you also, for us, bridge this connection? I was something you were just saying, and I was thinking about as we talk about this life cycle and examples that we are showing children as they move into adulthood or as we raise them to move into adulthood. Um, and we talk about power, right? Because sometimes people see the power dynamic conversation in terms of race and, race and ethnicity. But can you also speak to it in terms of gender, right? Because we're talking mm -hmm. about patriarchy and this year and many years before now, but this is the year people will remember, um, we've seen women, specifically black women, rise to the occasion in power and leadership to make change happen. I think there have been questions from uh, male counterparts about the sustainability of that, um, the validity of that, and is there a place for that, right, in the future, or is this a one-off situation? And so as we tie this whole power struggle dynamic with the matriarchy, I wanted you to dig into that some. I am fascinated by what you just said, that there are people who are questioning whether it's sustainable, whether it's a one-off. And the reality is, that's a question I feel like we're only really asking here, um, and in a few other countries maybe, but for the most part, women are in leadership um, in very powerful positions in many, many parts of the world. And it seems I've used this word already before, but I'm going to use it again. Ridiculous that in the United States, which is supposed to be this kind of beacon of equality and freedom and all these things, that for some reason um, gender gets to define what roles you can and cannot play in the leadership of our society. So, I, I mean, I... I don't even understand why it's a conversation. I mean, let me take that back. I completely understand why it's a conversation. Um, I don't think it's valid. I think that the idea of um, maintaining power or limiting power into the hands of people who, um, particularly cisgender men, um, and in this country, more likely than not, it's cisgender men, but cisgender men. Um, we're in Memphis where it's majority black and they're, you know, you have to like, you know, uh, there are plenty of black men in positions of power and authority. Um, that the idea that there's something about that identity that is well suited to leadership is ridiculous on its face because we know for a fact that black women have 
been fundamental to leadership uh, throughout our kind of existence on this continent um, in terms of uh, kind of managing families, leading in communities. And one of the biggest things that I often argue with my mom about growing up is um, the way that uh, black women um, who practice Christianity are leaders in churches. I have, I grew up wondering, this doesn't make sense to me. It seems like there are more women giving money and running things than there are men in some of these um, institutions. And yet there are more women in leadership in the institutions. I was like, what sense does that make? I mean, because if the women weren't there, there would be no institution. So why is it their presence or their contributions matter up to this point? Um, so I don't, I think that we are being dishonest if we mm. entertain, if we engage in conversations about whether black women should or shouldn't be in leadership. I am fascinated that in this city, there hasn't been a black woman as a mayor, right? Black women in Memphis in particular are the largest subgroup, right? We like are the ones who are gonna have the biggest impact on kind of the economy. We're the ones who are gonna have the biggest impact on just about everything. We are the largest subgroup. And yet, um, how is it that we don't occupy the highest um, seats of authority in our government? Or across the board and many different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Across the board. I have to say that one of my kind of personal missions has been to see how do we get more black women in leadership um, in organizations, um, particularly in the nonprofit sector. Uh, I have come been hit really hard just myself as an entrepreneur in recognizing some of the barriers to black women in leadership in the private sector, oh. the for-profit private sector. Uh, but there's really no excuse for um, black women not to be in leadership in a number of different mm -hmm. parts of our community locally. We concur. Yes. <laughs> and I have, um, I have another question, which might be our final question for the evening. Um, but I know earlier you kind of looked at, you talked about power. It's almost like it's on a sliding scale, right? So, you know, you have power, somebody else comes with more power, can get more things done, your power is diminished. But even along that sliding scale, um, and just thinking about our audience, the people we connect with, you know, folks who may look like us, who may not, you know, men, women, black, white, all of that. How can we all leverage our power to make change? And as you know, again, we're talking about it from the perspective of for our children, for the future, you know, for Memphis, hopefully for the world, you know, we dream big around here. Yes. So how can we really leverage our power from wherever we sit to make change? Whew, that's the big question. The first part of the answer, I think, is that we're gonna, we should really learn from all of the people who are leading collective efforts now, who are part of large collective efforts now, to press for change, right? So um, all of the examples set by the Movement for Black Lives, um, by uh, people who do, who are really steeped in labor organizing, right? There are a lot of people who understand what it means to lock arms and work together to press for change. 
um, from a social change standpoint. I think within um, more formal institutions, uh, the same similar principles apply that having coalitions and collaborative efforts to agree on what the vision is and how to pursue it is a way to magnify your power. Individuals, as individuals, we can only do so much. Um, even if we are elected, right? People, we work really hard to get people elected to office, but if we don't do the work as citizens to continue to push them, but and also to continue to support them when they're doing what we need for them to do, and continue to show up as citizens to vote and participate, then we're not allowed. We're not using our collective um, co collective capacity in support of that person we put forward. So I think the the answer is always going to be some form of collectivism, collaboration, um, coalition, that those are the kind of pathways to really leveraging power. Um, I think one of the things that stands in the way of that work is that we're not always aware of how steeped we are in um, capitalism and American ideas of rugged individualism and in, and individual um, benefit that we can sometimes allow our desire to be out front or to be the one in charge or to be the one who gets credit or to be like sometimes we allow those things to get in the way of our ability to really do collective work. And I know that I have in my own kind of collaborative work locally, one of the things I'm constantly saying is there's a time where, yeah, it's important for people to know you did this. I did this. This is important. But more often than not, it really doesn't matter um, who gets the credit for it if the work is really about improving people's lives. What matters is that you actually did that work and that together you did that work. And if it's convenient for somebody else to take the credit for it, let them take the credit for it. But we, I think too much, we're too tied sometimes to individual fame and ego um, and credit in ways that are reflective of, quite frankly, our, the white supremacist culture we live in. And less so about our ability to succeed together. And that's, again, anybody not raced not gendered mm -hmm. like that is a, a universal issue in these united states of america i don't know what happened i'm not an expert on other people cultures but i think that is a universal challenge um here hey well you've given us all the nuggets i'll ask you do you have any closing remarks before we bid farewell and allow people to get to their dinner and get back to their children. <laughs> yeah. So I just have one thing. We didn't really get into this, but I really encourage people to think about how, um, particularly if you're in trying to have interracial relationships around some of these issues, for people to really think about the distinctions um, between the way that white women and black women show up in the world. It's one of my pet issues that we are, we have been socialized in this country to be um, the closest thing to natural enemies. <laughs> and um, at some point, I think 
you know, and there are some white women who let go of the um, seduction of being that close to white male power. But I, I think that is a really critical point of um, imp- pro- pot- potential collectivism for us is if uh, white women can let go of some of the, um, what I call the addiction um, to white male power and recognize the potential um, for working together as women um, and and as women across the gender spectrum, uh, really working together. So that would be my my final statement. And thank you so much for inviting me to have this conversation. Thank you. We appreciate thank you. you. Go ahead, Erica. Oh, no, I was just saying thank you. I have really enjoyed this conversation, even our pre-conversation before we (laughs) got in front of our audience. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Adrian Johnson-Williams. I repeat, Dr. Adrian Johnson-Williams here with us. Uh, We appreciate you giving us wisdom, knowledge, and really wrapping up this series for us. It has been a joy and a privilege to hear all of the women. I listed them all in the chat if you missed it. Uh, we've learned so much along the journey, but we appreciate your time tonight as our finale. And we explore the dichotomy of the power struggle and the matriarchy. And we look at the life cycle of a black child. We appreciate it. It is happy holiday season. We want to say happy holidays. Happy New Year. And from our Wonder family, in case you haven't received an email or a text or a social media post, don't forget to support our crowdfunding campaign, Boy by Design, wraps up on Saturday. You can visit www.ifundwomen.com forward slash projects forward slash wonder. We appreciate your support. It has been a phenomenally crazy 2020, but we are grateful for all the highs and grateful for all the lows. And we pray that you have a blessed holiday season. Stay safe, stay healthy. No large groups. I know it's going to be really difficult if you have a grandma like mine who is upset about Thanksgiving. So please stay in your small network. If you go somewhere, have one person with you with your mask on. And anything else, Erica, any final words? No, that is all. Yes, everyone stay safe. We're looking ahead to 2021. We don't know what lies ahead, but we are we're looking ahead to it. So thank you all for taking this journey with us, and we'll be connecting soon. So y'all have a happy holiday. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.